This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to a brand new edition of Freedom Books, Flowers and the Moon, the podcast brought to you each week by the Times Literary Supplement. My name is Stig Abel, the editor of the TLS. Alongside me is commissioning editor and yogic sitter, Thea leonard I should probably let you know that the TLS office is more or less how you would imagine it to be. There's lots of books, bookcases, angrily clever people sitting <laughs> at desks on normal chairs, and one person, Thea sitting on a large purple inflatable yoga ball who could that be who is that person who, who could that be i couldn't i don't it's no you idea. it's my it's a one woman crusade to stave off editor's hunch and i would say that i'm i'm failing and does it work it. no i found i've still i found a way to do the two things that it's supposed to impede you from doing which is to cross my legs Stop. And and to hunch over. So it's supposed as to I'm stop you doing copy. that. Yeah. I really wanted when I'm just we moved. So ladylike in my editing. You do ladylike <laughs> editing. <laughs> I feisty. Can't help you do feisty editing. <laughs> oh my god. On your so purple sad. ball. When we moved offices, I wanted to take everyone's chairs away and just have a room filled with bouncing purple yoga balls. <laughs> Maybe one day that that day will that, that, that there's that a kind of utopian come. vision that people look into the. T- I better just look into the TLS today and look inside. And there's just these gigantic. There's another unusual chair though. It's only fair to point out. And I'm not going to name the editor who sits on that chair because no, I it, don't think it's fair. But it's Rupert. But it's, 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 it's Rupert Short, the religion editor, isn't it? It's, it's such an unusual chair. It is. Dot, Anyone dot, who's dot. In, the, in the area, do drop him. But if you want to know who Thea is, you've never seen her before, she'll be the one gently bouncing on a purple yoga ball. Hunched over. Hunched over, yes. Yeah, exactly. In a ladylike fashion. Make sure you're following this podcast on Twitter at FBFM underscore podcast. And please do review us on iTunes. That's really important to us. And if you want to subscribe to the TLS, Google TLS subscriptions, type pod1 in the offer code section and you'll get six issues for £6. Coming up on the show this week, we should be talking to Philippe Sand, who is set to lead a live reading of Primo Levi's If This Is A Man, which is 70 years old this year, at the Southbank Centre on the 30th of April. The event will take five hours and includes a diverse cast of readers, including Tom Stoppard, Alan Rusbridger and Auschwitz survivor Susan Pollack. We have a Shakespearean issue this week in the TLS, so we'll be speaking to the doctor and commissioning editor Michael Keynes about how protective we should be of the man and the canon. And Rebecca Spang has written an essay on the growth of private money and the sexualisation of monetary metaphors. She'll be on the line from the US.
This year marks 70 years since the publication of If This Is a Man, the Italian writer and chemist Primo Levi's lucid first-hand account of survival in Auschwitz. He was inmate 174,517. In the book, he gives frank and detailed descriptions of day-to-day life in the death camp and of the people he met there, as well as setting the foundations for questions he would continue to circle back to and expand on for the rest of his life and career. Foremost among them, what distinguishes those who will be drowned from those who will be saved? His sharp and against-the-odds rational, scientific observations led him to be called the anthropologist of the death camps. At the heart of his book, driving every sentence, is the need to remember, to remind, to make readers share in the experience and to pass that on to future generations. Which brings us quite neatly, really, to Philippe Sands, the leading human rights lawyer, author and filmmaker whose own work, including a recent book, East West Street, and a related documentary, My Nazi Legacy, What Our Fathers Did, draws from the same sources. He will be joined by A.L. Kennedy to give a live reading of Levy's full text at the Southbank Centre's Royal Festival Hall in London on April 30th. So, Philippe, it's a five-hour reading accompanied by a live orchestra and featuring a cast of actors and camp survivors, among others. How did it come about? I had done a, a reading, an event at the Southbank with A.L. Kennedy, who I've known for some years. And at the end of that event, the head of literature and spoken word, Ted Hodgkinson, said to us, you know, um, next year is the 70th anniversary of Levy's If This Is a Man. Why don't we curate together a reading of the entire text? And Alison and I just jumped at the idea. For each of us differently, the book touched us in different ways. I think I read the book when I was about 19 for the first time, and it just opened doors that had been kept firmly shut in my family home and threw an insight into things I wanted to know about. But, as your introduction has indicated, with a, a sort of an acuity, but also a sense of humanity that was immensely powerful. And so I've come back to the book time and time again. I think for Alison, I mean, she can speak for herself, the book just speaks to the here and now um, that we are apparently heading back to a place from which we came. It may be a dark place, uh, and it's useful to go back to these prior events to remind us what it is we need to avoid. As you said there, your own work, it has been adapted for the stage in, in the past. In 2007, there was Call to Account, which is a staged inquiry into the legalities of the Iraq war. And then there was A Song of Good and Evil, which uh, a tour which started in 2014, I think, and it ended last year in, in November in Nuremberg, courtroom 600. Um, and that was at the invitation of the German government to mark the 70th anniversary of the first day of the Nuremberg trials. So what do you, I mean, what do you think this kind of performance can add to such weighty material? Well, the first thing that Alison and I wanted to do was to make sure that the group of readers, I think we're 15 in number, were universal in the sense that they touched all types of backgrounds and experiences. So a couple of the readers were actually at Auschwitz at the same time as Primo Levi. But we've also got, for example, Nicholas Frank, who's the son of uh, Hitler's governor of Nazi-occupied Poland. And we've got also the grandson of the man who hanged Hans Frank, uh, Patrick Lawrence's contributing to the reading. His grandfather, uh, Jeffrey, was the presiding judge at Nuremberg. And then we've got actors and a chemist, Tom Stoppard. It's, it's an amazingly broad group of people who bring to it different experiences. And I think what we really wanted to do is underscore the sense of universality and issues of common humanity. But it's the public nature of the reading 
accompanied by music that I think is significant. You know, I think for all of us, when you go to an event that works and you experience it not alone or not only alone, but with others, the experience is different. And I think the excitement for Alison and I was a public and pretty much complete reading, which means that a thousand or so people who are there on the 30th of April will collectively go through a shared experience. It's, it's striking that you're bra- almost breaking down in, in, sort of in a prismatic fashion to the constituent parts of his voice, because you can't recapture a single individual angry voice of the book. But from what you're saying, the people you've picked, the, the, the chemist, there's people who were at Auschwitz, there's people who were associated with the Nuremberg trials so so the notion of the witness that comes across from the book uh, as well is that is that the conscious attempt to find different aspects of what levy was doing and, and therefore bring it together into a coherent whole actually it's not conscious but it's a really astute observation it's another way of explaining um what has happened so i remember we sat alison and i sat and we thought okay who do we need to get and and, and we both agreed we we had to find a chemist so by complete coincidence, I just received from the United States a, an email from a Nobel Prize winning chemist, uh, an American who wasn't going to be in the UK, but he recommended his mate, Martin Polyakov, who happens to be the brother of the writer Stephen Polyakov. So I just emailed Martin and said, would this be of interest? And he literally emailed back within 10 minutes and said, absolutely. And I want to do the chapter about the chemist. So there is that point of connection I mean, why Nicholas Frank is doing it? Um, He, as a young boy, aged four or five, lived in Krakow within sort of smelling distance of Auschwitz, although Auschwitz was not within his father's uh, territory. uh, It was proximate enough, you know, to be relevant. So he's flying from Germany. I think for him to read that text uh, is significant almost as a sort of way of atonement. And then we've got uh, Lillian, who was a survivor of the genocide in Rwanda and who brings to the reading a totally different experience, but one which will obviously resonate in a different way. So I think it's a very astute observation you've made. I think subconsciously, not consciously, we wanted to find people who brought Levy's words alive but from different backgrounds and perspectives. Maybe having also writers uh, was significant because at the end of his life, uh, Levy, I I suppose once a a chemist, always a chemist, but he really had morphed into a world-class, world-renowned writer. We wanted people who spoke with his writerly voice. And how does the music come into it? Well, we worked out that the total reading was about five or six hours, and that is pretty heavy. One of the things the book has in it, when you sit down and read the whole, is there are fairly regular references to music uh, in the book, including references to music played and used at the camp. So we thought that it might be interesting to inject into the reading little pauses, sort of pauses for reflection almost. And I had a that time been immersed in a project, East West Street, um, Song of Good and Evil, which we do four performances a year. Actually, they, they haven't uh, finished. We're, 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 we're going on you know, next year to Berlin and Lviv and, and Australia. But in that context, I've entered the world of musicians. And one musician I've worked with is Tom O'Keller, 
who is the leader, uh, violinist of the Academy of St. Martin's in the Fields. And I just sent him an email and said, look, we're doing this. How about some music? And he emailed back straight away very excitedly. And he's actually gone through systematically the book and identified about 14, 15 pieces of music. They're only going to play extracts. But they include some of the pieces that are played by the orchestras in Auschwitz. Um, one of the orchestras was the Mädchen Orchestra, the ladies' orchestra, and one of the performers in that orchestra, Anita Walfisch, um, is reading. She won't be performing music, although both her son and grandson will be performing as part of the musical ensemble. It's, it's extraordinary um, that you have someone who was once playing uh, there involved in this. Uh, you mentioned East West Street there. Uh, which tells the story of three lawyers involved in 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 war crimes. Um, the prosecution of them: Raphael Lemkin, who co- coined the term genocide, and Hirsch Lauterpacht, who framed the concepts of crimes against humanity. And one of the things that your book, I thought, was seeking to demonstrate, and Levy, in a way, does the same thing. What's it's the importance of witness? It's the importance of a sort of judicial framing of inhumanity because a response can be very visceral and, and therefore kind of messy and the importance of a coherent judicial response to unimaginable cruelty becomes very significant is that is that something that you you're sort of very consciously interested in i wonder again you keep on hitting on points that plainly resonate with me i wonder if it's that i'm not consciously but subconsciously reacting to that. One of the things that I find so striking about the Levy book, the first time I read it, and then the second and third time, but now I've sort of immersed myself in it, including the sections that I'm going to read, is the tone of his voice. It's a firm voice. It's not a bitter voice. It's not an angry voice. It's a resolute voice, and it's a humane voice. And I wonder in part whether that style of writing, which is not his alone, Stefan Zweig writes in a similar sort of way, Joseph Roth writes in that way, somehow touched me so that when I came to write my own book, 65 years after Levy's book, dealing with the most appalling acts imaginable, I step back slightly and strip out the raw emotion from what I am writing. And I know from the reaction I've had from readers, letters, emails, phone calls and other things, that people appreciate that it's you don't I'm not wearing my heart on my sleeve. I tend ironically to be quite an emotional person, but I've stripped it out of the book and maybe again it's subconscious. I didn't in writing my book saying, Oh, I must sound like Levy or oh I must sound like Stefan Zweig or whatever and, and I don't for a moment compare myself with those remarkable writers. But the tone I think really impressed me because when you read Levy it becomes all the more powerful to read of matters of unspeakable brutality and horror which are not presented in an emotional way. And I think because he, in effect, presents the facts and his own interpretation of the facts, what is going on, that leaves a space in which each reader's imagination is able to be ignited. And that's a good thing. In other words, Levy does not impose a reaction on the reader. And that makes the reader that much more engaged with the text. Mm, it's, that, it's that classic thing of, of showing, not telling. And, and, and Levy for, foreshadowed that, or well, pre-explained it, I suppose, in his foreword, didn't he? Where he sort of anticipated the incredulity, the, perhaps the frustration on the part of the reader that there was so little outright condemnation of the oppressor and, and moral judgment. 
The preface is overwhelming. I, I must say that we sat and worked out who was going to do what, and I basically said, I, I don't care what I do, I'll do anything anyone wants me to do, but the piece I would most love to read is the preface, and so we agreed that I'll do the preface. Part of the reason the preface is so important for me is that it speaks to today. We're in a moment right now in which that settlement of 1945 post-war, which said never again, I mean, it's part of the Universal Declaration on Human Rights, Nuremberg, international rules, free trade rules, and so on and so forth, was we will not allow ourselves in Europe to go there again. And we have more or less been able to uphold ourselves as an area uh, to that. But that is right now under threat. And it's under threat in the context of, you know, the future of the EU and the future question of the UK's involvement um, in the EU and the European Convention on Human Rights. And if you read the preface very carefully, you see that at the heart of it, really, Levy is saying, once you focus on issues of identity, once you treat a human being, he refers always to a man, but I'm sure he meant also a woman, not because of who they are individually, but because of the group that they happen to belong, then we are lost. And, and do you really that, believe, Philippe, that there's, that's, that the threat of that darkness returning is real and present now? I absolutely believe it's real and present now. I think people with an absence of sense of collective historical memory somehow imagine that Europe has gone to another place and that it could never happen again. I mean, I was deeply involved in cases in the former Yugoslavia, and I saw what happens when things slip out of control. And we've seen that again now in relation to refugees. And we've seen it even in a different way, on a different level. Um, I've seen it with some of the barristers that I work with in London who are not white and who are not British being abused in the streets because of their colour or their nationality. So I think we are in a very dangerous place right now. And I think one of the reasons East West Street has resonated far more than I expected and why there's an interest in going back to Levy is simply to remind us where we've come from. I think a lot of people have forgotten. The capacity for horror is inherent. It's there. It doesn't just disappear. We have not been civilised into the absence of brutality. It's around the corner and we have to proceed very carefully. Philippe, this sounds like an extraordinary and very important event, so thank you very much. I should say that tickets are on sale for the event now on the South Bank Centre's website, which is www.southbankcentre.co.uk, and we're hoping to be able to bring you more on the event in the coming weeks. Thanks very much. Uh, brilliant. It's odd, if you think about it, the extent to which we can feel that William Shakespeare needs defending. And yet we might also readily see why. He bequeathed two things to the world, almost unimaginable literary greatness and an insatiable curiosity about him and his work, thanks to the lack of information that survives. There is no authorised biography of Shakespeare, and more tellingly, no authorised edition of his works. The folio, the first attempt to collect Shakespeare, was published in 1623, after his death. What has resulted is endless speculation about whether Shakespeare could have written the plays and which plays he did actually write. The new Oxford Shakespeare has suggested that up to two-fifths of the plays we think of as Shakespeare's were the result of collaboration, including the assertion, which in my view is unlikely, that Christopher Marlowe was involved in Henry VI. 
The Shakespeare scholar Brian Vickers has written about that edition in the paper this week, alongside other pieces, including reviews of Julius Caesar, Antony Cleopatra and The Winter's Tale. Our Shakespearean guru, the doctor, Michael Keynes, joins Thea and me in the studio now. Firstly, Michael, why is there this never-ending drive to argue that Shakespeare didn't write Shakespeare? Well, I think there's frustratingly two sides to it. There's the serious side to find out what words are Shakespeare's and to find out more about the plays, who he worked with, why they're written a certain way. And there's the really silly side to it, which is just, frankly, based on very odd suspicions um, about, I think, the imagination itself. When you talk about people who think that Shakespeare was Francis Bacon or the Earl of Oxford or Queen Elizabeth I, I mean, these are all things that have been put forward at one time and another. This is a no basis at all in terms of the text. It's because people really, I think, hate the idea that an ordinary person with an ordinary human brain could have written these plays. And it makes much more sense to that kind of person to say that only a nobleman or, or indeed a queen could have written about say, Henry V or Richard III or whatever. So I think that's the silly side. But one of the things that I think Brian Vickers brings out is that the serious side, the scholarly side, isn't immune to a kind of silliness of its own. I mean, Brian Vickers himself has done, I think, quite amazing work, meticulous work on how Shakespeare worked with different writers at the early and the late stages of his careers. You know, he was helping writers, or he was at least collaborating with younger writers later in his career. He was working with senior writers early in his career. And there are plays that it seems that he wrote uh, by himself, you know, solo written plays. But, of course, the theories themselves, they proliferate. People always want to find out a little bit more, maybe turn a hint of a theory into something larger, larger than the evidence can bear. And as time progresses, are we constantly looking for a kind of new hit it's almost as as if we've we've said this is a this is a play not by shakespeare and that's become accepted or otherwise and then the job of the editor is to try and find something else so inevitably as time progresses we're going to end up with less and less of shakespeare being attributed to shakespeare because each generation of scholars kind of has to find their own moment of i suppose innovation or controversy it's interesting in that respect, isn't it, that W.W. W. Norton and Oxford University Press used to collaborate on these kinds of editions, whereas now they're sort of setting themselves up as rivals. That's absolutely it. I think there are, there are other factors here, apart from the mindsets involved, the serious and the silly side. The market is a driving force here, and I think it's also true it depends on fashions and age. You know, people used to love the idea of Shakespeare, the solo genius. Now they're not so sure. They're much more interested in this this idea that the new Oxford Shakespeare embodies Shakespeare working with lots of different writers. And that's kind of authentic to an extent, isn't it? I mean, I, I'm temperamentally inclined to Shakespeare, the solo genius, but that's not how necessarily the Elizabethan, the Jacobean playhouse environment work. There's lots of messiness, lots of talking to one another, grabbing songs from someone, grabbing a bit of dialogue from another. Shakespeare was constantly lifting material anyway from books he'd read. So the notion of collaboration is kind of hardwired into the genre. It's it's very different, I think, uh, from how authorship has been imagined in later ages. People are, of course, producing plays, not for a long run, not for a single long run where you need a stable text and it gets published straight away and the author is there to acknowledge it with property laws protecting their rights, plays being made and remade all the time. And it's to that process we owe a copy, a surviving copy of what seems to be Shakespeare's hand in a play called Sir Thomas More that was originally written by at least two writers and scholars now think has, oh, you know, five or six playwrights working on it. One of them is Shakespeare. Three pages of Shakespeare are there. So it's to that very different way of working on plays that we owe 
Shakespeare's hand itself. So should we welcome the Ox- new Oxford Shakespeare as an attempt to recognise that? It's tricky because obviously what Professor Vickers is reviewing is in a way the outcome of lots of scholarly work, but they have really pushed the boat out and produced an authorship companion that I think gives the um, case in all its gory detail for how they've arrived at all these different combinations of authors. So I think that's where the meat of the argument is about that. And so at the very least, you could say it'll foster further arguments about this debate and push people who disagree to try and get it right in other ways. There's another, and I'm not sure how recent it is, perhaps you can tell me, another recentish, I think, development, um, and, and it's one that Catherine Duncan-Jones talks about, which is the rise in this, it's sort of like the Shakespeare production memoir slash manual, where people who have worked on the plays or acted in the plays or both write about their experience of putting it on. So in her review, she talks about Michael Pennington's King Lear in Brooklyn, for example, and there are a couple of others there. Is that is that a very new thing? Because that strikes me as a very interesting way of coming at it. Yeah, it's a curious development, isn't it? Because while on, on the one hand you want scholars to uh, have certain checks and balances in place so that you can't just say what you like and claim that that's the new Shakespeare. I think it's almost the opposite case with productions. I want things to be as different and as free as possible. And things like actors' memoirs and, uh, you know, theatre directors' kind of manifestos, they all they all testify to that wide range of the imagination, to all the possibilities that people come up with. In a way, it's quite an old habit. I mean, some of the first big names of the 18th century wrote about what they did and why they did it, innovations. I mean, at the time, it doesn't sound like much now, but innovations like making Shylock dress, say, a little bit like a Jew or giving Macbeth some tartan to wear. I mean, these things, obviously, nowadays you might take for granted that or they, it's come round and they now seem incredibly hackneyed. But then they were revelations and they wrote about them. So people were always interested in why you changed something because the basis used to be in English theatre that you would have properties and costumes that are passed down and even and gestures, you know, as an idea of actors passing on virtually on their deathbed if necessary, um, how King Lear is to be mm. played or what Thomas Betterton's move was as Hamlet. He had a move where the ghost appears and Betterton's Hamlet sort of knocks over a chair. It's not in the text. Mm, it's just I a lo- nice little theatrical gesture. I love that idea of, of, of seeing um, an actor form, formulate their character. I was in the Shakespeare Institute a year or so ago and, and um uh, one of the archivists there was showing me through all of these notebooks that Samuel West had had, had kept while he was uh, in various plays, and you know it, it had everything from kind of copied and uh, copied text oh, right. that was yes. key insights into a particular character, or little glued-in pictures of the Joker from Batman, and just all of these different things that go into the the form the formation. And it was that idea that Shakespeare is ours, which is. That's a, really a, a yes, difficult area, the actors I suppose, kind but... of take on. Is that Sam Sam West? Did yeah, you yeah. Say? That's really interesting. I saw um, his dad, I think Tim Timothy West, speaking about about his own memoirs uh, many years ago, and he said that he played Falstaff and his son had played Prince Hal, and he looked at their scripts, and Sam West says, "Why does Hal do this? You know, what's his feelings yeah, about yeah, what Falstaff?" Are his and Timothy I saw West, that one. Timothy West's was just move boots or something. Yeah. <laughs> or yeah, I saw that one. <laughs> I mean, if you look at the great burst in publication memoirs is really what people are writing these days aren't they and so maybe that's just this is a natural flowering of that in regard to Shakespeare as well that you know, everyone's writing about their own personal experiences in regard to swimming or or commuting or you know, virtually any area of human activity now is a book and maybe that's just what's happening with with Shakespeare I suppose we had that as well um on a slightly different note with um 
the recent Bronte, Samantha Ellis's book on um, on the Bronte. It's Bronte and Me, isn't Bronte it? Bronte and Me, yeah, which is a is a classic example of that, mm. I suppose. We've had that with Rebecca Mead's book on Middlemarch as well, haven't we? It's interesting. Mm. I think it's, you know, biblio, bio, <laughs> and biography. It, and it kind of makes it. it accessible. I think that's, there's something legitimate in that. I, I would have loved to have seen a 19th century production of Shakespeare. You know, the ridiculous ones which have 400 cast members and real boats and real horses and stuff like that because I, I can't imagine that would be anything other than utterly ridiculous. I was at the Bodleian uh, in the autumn and they had a fantastic painting there of Henry VIII being performed with full, you know, regalia and there's about 100 people on stage and it's probably, you know, it's absolutely astonishingly gaudy and I just, you'd be fascinated has, to see it. Has anyone ever tried, because, you know, because we're talking about how fashions change and actually a realistic Shakespeare that's probably is that back in fashion again? Because there's, you know, every time I saw Macbeth or read about Macbeth, it was always set in some sort of dystopian, apocalyptic state in a really annoying way, or it was always set in sort of some sort of Eastern European state, state that was unnamed. But maybe there's a sort of return to realism, is there, with the right? There is, yeah, because there is the sense that um, the Victorians are perennially uh, for the theatre. That is, Victorian theatre is perennially out of fashion, but a lot of the props we have, you can I've seen Macbeth done with sort of real. With sort of artificial rain and with trucks brought on and we've seen Henry V done in sort of khaki as if it was the Iraq War and all that kind of thing. So maybe we're kidding ourselves about how distant we are from those times. Actually, we rather like all these kind of realist props who just pretend it's all bare stage Shakespeare. I would love to see someone to, to, to absolutely just revive the sort of the 19th century text, 400 cast, real animals and real boats. Because it would be an extraordinary thing and it would ask questions about how we regard Shakespeare because I think, like you say, we like to pride ourselves on fidelity to the text, which is why these editors have a job, which is why you know people can, can go live their lives arguing about whether the song really did come from Shakespeare, it was an interpolation by Middleton or, or, or whatever. Mm-hmm. But maybe doing something ridiculous like a Victorian staging would at least ask the question, what, what do we go to Shakespeare for? Absolutely. It's kind of experiment that you, you see in, you know, with other targets in mind that you see at Shakespeare's globe all the time to see things with you know authentic or original performance kind of conditions and that arguably cost Emma Rice her job at the globe because she wanted to bring in innovation and she lasted about it felt like three it didn't feel very long did it I mean well she's still there now but it feels like uh, she's, she's, she's sort of history for them because they've, they've chosen their side I don't know we'll see you in the future whether they're going to stick to that but it's a strange one you could argue that maybe Shakespeare would have been on her side since he went on to work from the Globe to, to the Blackfriars Indoor Theatre where you could control lighting charge more have music etc etc yeah, it's hard. Yeah, it's hard to believe that he would have been a purist in anything when you you sort of read the plays. Perhaps uh, quickly, I'm going to go and see Romeo and Juliet actually at the Globe, which is Emma Rice's right. last season. Is I it? I think it is. Yes, coming um, up. Yes. Which is in a couple of weeks' yeah. time. But we review a couple of productions: um, Anthony and Cleopatra, Julius Caesar, and The Winter's Tale. Anything notable in any of those? Uh, it sounds like the. RSCs, Anthony and Cleopatra and Julius Caesar, linked productions, different directors, uh, same cast, but but I think recast from from play to play, which is an interesting decision. So you get to see the same actors, but in markedly different roles. That's interesting. Extraordinary Cleopatra. It sounds like the reviewer's got a great deal to say about her. And uh, I think an um, interesting design that doesn't force you to impose a kind of modern reading of the two plays, but that just invites you to think about parallels about political power hypocrisy and all that kind of business which never goes out of fashion exactly do you want to give your headline i'm afraid i've headlined that piece done roman done roman
That's my fault. I take it upon myself. Matt the producer actually, he actually flinched. There was genuine headline flinching. (laughs) I am really sorry. I'm delighted to be honest, Michael, because I feel as a kindred spirit because I, I, as you know, love a pun-based headline. I know you love a pun Uh, and I can't resist either. Given half a chance, I will. Dun Roman is a very good... I'm sure Shakespeare would approve of that too. I'd like to be... This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. What is money is one of those questions that seems facile but is troublingly difficult to answer properly. In today's world, money is a system of credit, a shared delusion of exchange. More than 95% of money has no physical existence. It exists as numbers within the framework of international banking. This bank money is private and is generally owned by and used for the benefit of a tiny percentage of the world's population. Rebecca Spang has reviewed three books that look at the rise of private money and its impact on our society and also its sexual or gender significance. This includes Anne Pettifor's The Production of Money, which was written especially for women and environmentalists, and David Bennett's The Currency of Desire. Pettifor takes a moralist position that private money is in opposition to our public needs. She uses the term offshore capitalism to characterise the fact that a massive amount of potential investment entering the trillions of dollars has been drained from the public sphere and therefore does not exist to help meet our society's challenges. If a fraction of the offshore money was retained to support the NHS, for example, how different it could look. David Bennett's book is more of a journey into language, how economic terms have been co-opted into describing psychic or sexual impulses. So there's rather a lot for us to dig into here. Rebecca Spang joins us now. Um, Rebecca, the notion of offshore capitalism is something of an accepted 
and oft-lamented one. I'm interested in how it connects to issues of gender. It's striking in Petafora's book that from the very beginning she says that she's written this book for women and environmentalists. And what she seems to mean by that is that she assumes the only people who really understand how money is produced today and for whom it's produced is a tiny, tiny fraction, the 1% of the 1% of the 1%, which is overwhelmingly male. And so these rich white bankers control money for their own interests, and women, people who are not rich, people who are not white, suffer the consequences. And does she make that case powerfully enough for you, Rebecca? Because it doesn't come across very clearly the bits that I've read of the book and looking into it just now, that I totally understand the argument of offshore capitalism. Does she succeed in sort of making a gender-based argument? one's familiarity with banking and finance departments in business schools, thinking about who the CEOs still of most major investment firms are. It's true that if you look at the speakers at a conventional or orthodox monetary economics and finance program, they will be overwhelmingly male. So she's right in that sense. On the other hand, her idea that there's sort of a unified feminist agenda, um, which is the same as a unified women's agenda, which has been systematically thwarted by the way money is produced today, that's really a stretch. I'm interested in the notion of can we have, is it also effectively just idealistic thinking that has no likelihood of occurring, that to have a sort of moral monetary system, a moral set of financial rules? Because it seems that we've moved far away from that. Is, is any notion that we could reclaim some morality for how money is shared and transferred, is that, is that even possible, do you think? I, I think it's worth aspiring to. Pedophore, I think, doesn't outline for us exactly what it's going to look like. She's much, much better as a critic uh, than she is in terms of constructing something new. Um, She's really a moralist, and so she wants to draw very clear lines between money being used for productive purposes and money being used for pure speculation. Um, But I think the interest, the issue in the world we live in today is it's very hard to know in some ways what constitutes productivity. I mean, after all, the idea that uh, humanity subjects, uh, history, literature, philosophy, classics, these are not productive things to study at university, that sort of language has been very um, damning for academics such as my own in the humanities. So it's hard for us to embrace her definition of productivity. It's interesting as well. I mean, she, um, orthodox, the, the orthodox economists, they, they come in and for a particularly large amount of criticism in, in, Pet- in Pettifor's book. They are especially immoral. Is that, is that because they have failed to give us the tools to understand what money means? They've mystified things for us. Yes, yes, that's an excellent point, um, that they've made money such an esoteric subject of conversation that money is private both in the sense that it's actually generally produced by commercial banks but also that only a very few people 
can get in on the conversation. Um, and certainly I know when I started working in this field as somebody trained in cultural history, I mean, it was almost 10 years ago, and it took a long time for me to read my way into this and actually feel like, no, I do now understand it. But I felt like I was teaching myself, not that anybody else was helping. Well, mm. And actually, it's deliberately obfuscating terms. And I mean, any time you look at, look at words, and John Langes has written brilliantly about this, a sort of, uh, words lose all meaning, so credit has lost its meaning. Yes. It's just another word for debt, or securitization means the very opposite right. of making secure. It means putting yes. up for grabs. Yeah. And that's deli- is that deliberate? I mean, do we agree with Pedophile? That's a kind of deliberate thing. Make it hard to understand, keep it in the club, and stop anyone really getting to grips with it. Again, I think to say that it's deliberate uh, is to succumb to the temptations a bit of conspiracy thinking. Um, But on the other hand, you could say that any academic or professional specialization uh, develops a language that other people can't understand. If you read an issue, say, of The Lancet from the mid-19th century, you feel like, oh, everybody understands medicine. And then if you read an issue, an article from that same periodical today, it's all enzymes and, you know, cell-level activity and, like, I don't understand a word of this. So it's just been a general pattern in the professions and in the disciplines over the past hundred plus years. Uh, let's talk about David Bennett's books. It looks at the terms we use to describe sex and money and how the two interrelate. What's, his, what's the, the thrust, if I can use that metaphor, of his, <laughs> uh, of his book? So what Bennett says is that we have one way of thinking about the relationship, which is a very uh, caricatured psychoanalytic view that when people talk about money, they're really talking about shit. That what if it's actually the other way around? He says maybe psychoanalysis uses the vocabulary of sex to hide the fact that what we're really talking about is money. I guess what's particularly interesting is that, I mean, no one could argue that capitalism doesn't underpin our conscious waking uh, sexual relations, but here Bennett shows that it's it's actually long shaped our unconscious sexual lives too. Well, I think what he's getting at is that the idea that desire, and this is you know a fundamentally Lacanian notion, the idea that desire can never be satisfied, um, and that the unconscious is always up to looking for more perverse pleasures that it can't actually allow itself. Um, He says that idea of unlimited desiring is actually the way capitalism works. So you start with that sort of model of the market and ever-growing production, and then you explain to people that this is actually the way their psyches work. Then we kind of believe it, and we have to go to therapists and try to get over it. So hang on, is is sex like money, or is money like sex? (laughs) That is his fundamental question. Ah, and what is the answer? (laughs) I'd say he's actually better at pulling out great anecdotes um, and giving you examples to think about than he is at offering an answer. But if he has an answer, it's that he's saying that sex is like money. So he's been sort of off and on talking about the fortunes of psychoanalysis and movements for sexual liberation and how they've been tied into different market forces. And then his final chapter talks about the complete 
non-regulation of capitalism in Russia after the fall of the Soviet Union. So, again, he's focused on the richest of the rich, and he talks about a houseboat party that was held wonderfully to honor the 4th of July, the U.S. national holiday, um, on a multi-story houseboat. I mean, to be honest, I didn't know these things existed, but I guess it really is almost offshore, literally, <laughs> this houseboat. And the point he draws from all of this is that it seems that in the celebration of greed and excess and capitalism and what was once now laughably called the end of history um, that was the late 1990s and still describes things in some parts of the world today, um, that in that culture the idea of anything being repressed, be it sexual desire um, or the urge to make money, it just doesn't seem relevant anymore. So strangely enough, psychoanalysis as a discourse, stops being relevant because eh, there's nothing repressed. So everyone's letting everything hang out. It's just really kind of grotesque. Yeah, you think of Russian oligarchs letting it all hang out is, is not yeah. an attractive uh, uh, prospect. Last question then, I suppose, Rebecca. What What's next with all of this thinking? Because we were said to have met a watershed in 2008 with the global banking crisis. And yet, if you yeah. look at any metric of what's gone on since then, nothing seems to have changed. You know, the call for more regulation is slightly died down. If you look at the amount of money being traded on non-existent things, that seems to continue at an ever-relentless rate, both in Britain and the US. What's the future that these people are talking about? Where do they see this going? I suspect that Pettifor would say that the Brexit vote, the election of Trump, all of these things mean that this is only going to get worse. I mean, you could sort of take a sort of Slavoj Žižek sort of line. Let's exaggerate the contradictions even more. Um, and so eventually the whole system would be brought to a breaking point you know, where you've really only got 40 oligarchs left and everybody else is miserable. Um, well, my personal hope is that we end up with some sort of active, energetic move for reform well before then um, so that we don't, in fact, have to have chaos and violent revolution in order to get ourselves out of this mess well let's 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 hope, let's that. hope for that one <laughs> yeah, yeah. i agree with you rebecca let, let's hope for that uh, rebecca spang thank you very much indeed it's a shame we didn't have time to go into um the third of the book legal issue. plunder yes by daniel lord smale i mean because that, that's i mean that's fa- it's a fascinating look a historical look at the historical rise of uh, roles of ca- of credit and and debt in so in medieval societies and how how it's, it's very tempting to draw parallels between then and now, and in fact, and say that you know medieval society was was capitalist or proto-capitalist, but it, in fact it wasn't because there were the very different notions of of the individual in that schematic. And also, things were pinned to reality. I think the, the big thing that's that's you you whenever you look at a historical sweep of the history of finance and money, there became a moment relatively recently where things no longer were connected to reality so to things yeah, to people material came out, goods we came out of the gold standard the u.s came out of the gold standard uh, in the 30s and again in the 70s but ultimately you know if you went to a bank loan they said how much money are you worth how much can you repay when can you repay and you made a deal with a bank manager and then you got a loan and you repaid it generally mm. speaking and then pretty much in the 80s and 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 thereafter that relationship between reality and money just 
completely evaporated. Mm. And so now, as Rebecca points out, there is no reality. 97%, I think it is, of all money exists only as a as a number on a screen. Mm. So and in parallel with that, you've got this ever more restricted notion of the individual. She talks about uh, the letter of Mark, which is a fascinating yeah. development in medieval society, whereby... Um, if a, if a, an individual got into debt and defaulted on his payments, all of the people who were in his locality were sort of liable to, to pay for that. Yeah. So there was this idea of a collective responsibility, which we've now lost as we as individuals retreat further from reality That's and, you know, buy things with credit on our iPhones and, and, it, and isolated. It's and the alone. connection between the private and the public good, which which mm. is what I think Petterfall's talking about. We no longer really can connect the two. I, I still don't quite get this sexy. I don't want to, I don't want to, I don't want to sound sort of... The gendered aspect. You well, mean. not even the gender, or even the sex thing. I mean, oh, are, are we saying... This sort of sex, money's like sex and sex is like money. Is that just, are we just talking about metaphors here? I mean, I think, well, what's, I mean, what's, the, what's the point? What does, it, what does it mean in the end? We'll have to come back to this. The, the, the genuine connection between, between money and sex. That's an endlessly fascinating subject, perhaps. Yes. We shall return to it. That's all, <laughs> thankfully, before we get into deep and dark waters. We have time for this week. Our thanks go to the wonderful Philippe Sands. The Doctor, Michael Keynes and Rebecca Spang do go to the-tls.co.uk to see this week's edition of the paper, which has more Shakespeare than anyone might reasonably wish to shake a stick at, an exclusive extract from Laurent Binet's novel about the death of Bart, and everything from contentious Native American bones to the secret life of dictionaries. Tweet this podcast at at fbfm underscore podcast with your comments and suggestions and join us next week where we should be asking this question, Thea. How seriously should we be taking graphic novels? Very, I suspect. I think we are going to be taking it seriously, <laughs> but should we, Thea? Are you a graphic novel fan? I'm not, Me. but only only through ignorance. Me too. Yeah, and that's I, why I, I thought we should have be... an issue on it. So yeah. we've got an extract from a graphic novel, we've got a big essay about how important graphic novels are, so you and I, by this time next hit week... hit our heads against it next week. <laughs> ...shall be experts. Until then, from Thea and from me, goodbye. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. 